0: Today we're going to talk about playtesting and working in groups. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. We also have an open community Discord. I'll leave the uh, link, the invite link in the show notes. On the Discord is where we do our Game of the Month jam. We do the Game Dev Challenge. We just discuss the craft of making video games. And it's a great place to come and join Um, If you're looking to find other like-minded people who are trying to learn game dev. I have two announcements, I guess, to start off this episode. The first being that next month's Game Dev Field Guide Monthly Game Jam will have a special theme or modifier. It will be a team-focused jam. So we were hoping to make it so that every game made for next month's, that would be the June Monthly Game Jam have every game be made by a team. And yeah, working in teams has a lot of benefits. It's uh, nice to kind of be able to play to your strengths and let other people play to their strengths and kind of collaborate with different kinds of people. And yeah, I think it'll be a lot of fun. And what's special about next month is that Gerald, the Monthly Game Jam director, and I will be dedicating some time to matchmaking people onto teams. Of course, you're perfectly welcome to make your own team and have them ready uh, for next month but maybe you don't know that many people who do game dev and uh, yeah the discord's a great place to meet people like that and so I guess the point is you can make your own team and if you can't find a team before next month then uh, Gerald and I will have a little sign up procedure and we will match make you to a team I will be participating next month as well so I'm looking forward to working with some of you On a monthly game for the month of June. The second announcement um, that I want to make. It's kind of a big personal step for me. I have quit my day job to become a full-time indie game developer. I had already had this plan kind of in the works um, by the spring of 2020. But of course, COVID happened and it kind of just made sense to keep my day job for... About a year, so this spring came up, and I finally decided to pull the trigger and really chase my dream and my passion. And so, yeah, now I am a full-time indie game developer. I'll be working on my first commercial game. It should be out by next summer. That's my that's my goal. So, roughly a year from now, I'll probably be in the home stretch. But I'll definitely be keeping you guys updated, and uh, I'll probably have a couple community betas and stuff like that for the discord group so yeah when I announced this on the uh, discord I got a lot of well wishes so I just wanted to say thank you so much having that kind of um, support group and just people wishing me well is really going to make a difference in I think my confidence and just knowing that I have a community that will have my back that's just I don't know it's just a nice um, I guess like mental health net. So yeah, with uh, those announcements out of the way, let's jump over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt for the listeners. And it's usually some prompt that's supposed to get you to practice sort of like thought experiments or sometimes, you know, physically practice if it's an art challenge. But yeah, they're just intended to be quick little exercises. And then people put their submissions on the community discord. um, They get voted on and... There's a winner and that winner goes up on like a scoreboard. It's a pretty cool system. I think it's pretty fun and I think you benefit a lot from participating in it. So for episode 32's prompt, just to remind you, the prompt was Animate, draw, or describe your idea for a Final Fantasy Summon. Get really creative with it and try to make it as much of a spectacle as you can. If you remember, episode 32 was about companion design and kind of had a lot of different sort of lenses of how companions work in video games. And one of them, we said, was the spectacle of a Final Fantasy summon and how cool that is just to see the animation or whatever it is on screen. And I realized that the animate and draw, that might have been a big ask for such a short time frame. Um... <laughs> So, we only had description submissions, which is totally fine. And I guess without further ado, the winner of the 32nd Game Dev Challenge is ToriVore1. ToriVore1's post uh, is as follows. Sorry if I do this wrong, this is my first one, but here it goes. A venom-like symbiote that when summoned attaches to the summoner as a host has three random attacks, which are Symbiote Surge. The Symbiote releases a giant blast that hits all people on the playing field, but does less damage to allies. Hack and Slash. The Symbiote forms weapons at the end of its appendages and attacks random enemy, doing massive damage. And lastly, Sacrificial Plunge. The Symbiote leaps from the host at a target and explodes upon one enemy, doing splash damage to enemies on either side. Note, this leaves the host with critical health and kills the summon symbiote. The summon lasts at most five turns during doing random attacks until either five turns or the sacrificial plunge attack happens. So I think this definitely checks the box on spectacle factor. I could see some really cool animations going on with this. If any of you guys have ever seen the anime Parasite, I could definitely see some like appendage weapons and some crazy fights going on with that and then of course you have like the classic spider-man venom sort of vibe so yeah i think this could make for some really cool moments some really high like spectacle moments but i also kind of like it from a game design standpoint because it's sort of like a slot machine where because the attacks are random um, and it only ends with a max of five turns or the sacrificial plunge. Then yeah, it's like I said, it's got kind of like that slot machine effect where you're just like watching cool anim- animations and hoping something happens next, just like you would on a slot machine. I don't know if you've seen some of the like bonus rounds and those things. Now they get real crazy, and uh, I think they do it on purpose. They do it to hook the person playing and really watch, like get high engagement, and so. Yeah, I think this post kind of checks all the boxes. And congrats to ToriVor1 for winning the episode 32 Game Dev Challenge. For the episode 33 Game Dev Challenge, I would like you to identify a flaw in a game that you have played and propose a change in a playtesting session that will test it and hopefully fix it. Later in the body of the episode, we're going to talk about playtesting sessions and the kind of things you want to look out for to design them. And yeah, this is just one of those thought experiment uh, type submissions where you can just write out your thoughts. But the key part is I really want to drive home the idea of designing a playtesting session to test a specific situation or thing in the game. And like I said, we're going to talk more about it later, so it's going to make sense in a second. But yeah, this is one of those ones where you just type out your thoughts. You can submit your submission for the Game Dev Field Guide Game Dev Challenge. Um, You can do that on the Game Dev Challenge channel on our community discord. Remember that the open invite link is in the show notes. With that, let's jump over to the body of the episode. Today's episode is a quick tips episode, but it's not going to feel like a quick tips episode um, because I have Two topics that were both kind of long enough for their own one, It just they just came up a little bit short, so I decided to connect them into one episode. And so I wouldn't call this Quick Tips, I'm only calling it Quick Tips rather for the, the branding. If I could switch it, I might say these are some Medium Tips. But the two topics for today will be playtesting and working in teams during game development. Um, let's just jump straight away into playtesting. Playtesting is an essential step in the game development process. Boiled down very simply, it's where you or others play a version of your game to find its flaws and strengths. Playtesting is a step that really you're going to be doing over and over again throughout the course of the project, and that's just because you're going to have a lot of builds, you're going to make a lot of changes, and each one of those will be a little bit different and need their own playtesting, so I just kind of want to get it out of the way first, that you should be playtesting your game uh, pretty early and pretty often. In fact, in my most recent Let'em Dare game, I actually regret not playtesting it early enough because I would have caught maybe how difficult it was to use the UI or how attention splitting the UI was. So I wish I would have playtested that a little bit sooner. So you can see how right up pretty much into your prototyping phase you'll be playtesting And so yeah, I just want to stress that you're going to be doing it early and often. You're probably going to playtest your own game so much that it may actually start to be your downfall. This is because the more that you play your game, the better you will get and you can forget what it's like to be a beginner at the mechanics or be new to the mechanics. This usually results in games that are harder than you intend. I always fall into this trap for jam games because often I don't have people to playtest before I launch since it's such a short time. um, I just kind of grind it out and playtest here and there when I can. And so let's identify some solutions to this problem where you kind of go difficulty blind we'll say just due to your exposure. Now the best thing you can do is to get outside playtesters. Um, If you can't get playtesters, the second best thing to do is to be cognizant of your own skill level and adjust your game accordingly. You might have to dial back the difficulty and just kind of guess because odds are after playtesting so much you're a lot better than the average person would be. Yeah, there's a little bit of guesswork in that, but it's the second best method and it's really the best you can do if you can't get playtesters. But if you can get playtesters... I want to talk about how I think you should use playtesters for their maximum effectiveness and maybe identify what makes a good playtester. So first, let's talk about how I think you should set up a playtesting session. To me, there are two kinds of playtesting sessions. The first one is just kind of a general and informal session where the player just kind of plays the game to see how they like it. This might be something that you would like show your friends or family or do like an open beta or something. The second kind is much more methodical and scientific and that's where you're testing specific things about the game design, the UI, the performance. Whatever it is, you're testing something specific and there's sort of a methodical nature to it. This is where you're likely to get your best information because it's so directed and targeted at figuring out and solving one thing. And like I said, approaching it this way, you should be approaching it in a methodical and almost scientific way. Let's for example say we want to test the balance of a new gun for a 5v5 shooting game. Well, the first thing we should do is identify 10 playtesters. We will talk more later about who is a good playtester But for now, I want to focus on something very specific to this example, and that is skill level. You have to consider the skill level of who you are basing your playtesting data on. For instance, this new gun may be really bad, but in a really good player's hands, um, they might be able to make it work. And on the flip side, the gun may be very good, but a new player who doesn't know the basics of the game, um, they won't have the skill to properly use it. And so the point is, is that you might be creating up blind spots in your balance based on who you selected for what you are testing. So how do we avoid the blind spot when testing a new weapon um, when it comes to who we select? Well, our best option is to use players of all the same skill level. That way we take the skill level differences out of the equation. In this case too, the player's skill level should not be beginner because we really want people who are familiar with the game and some basic strategy and have some basic skill. So I would say in the best case scenario, we would probably want 10 middle-of-the-pack players to test out the weapon. Now, of course, that's in the ideal world where you could select the 10 perfect playtesters. And in most cases, especially for indie devs, that's not going to be your real world. So the next best thing we can do is have 10 players from all over the skill spectrum. And what we want to do in that case is avoid giving the weapon to the experts and the beginners. We'll just focus on that middle of the pack group and we'll get really good data out of that. So yeah, I guess the point of that example is you want to be careful about avoiding the blind spots when it comes to who you are picking and what it is you are testing. And speaking of blind spots, I don't think friends and family are really that great for getting honest feedback. And I think I've said this before, but I just wanted to put it in this context. And the reason why I think it's sort of a blind spot is that most of your friends and family are going to be way too nice. Like, if you ask your mom, she's probably going to (laughs) say that it's good. Even if she thought it was bad or even if she didn't understand it, she's just going to say it's good. And that's not a bad thing, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't show your games to your friends and family you definitely should show your games to your friends and family because it's a fun thing to do it's something to bond over it's nice when people take interest in your hobbies and work but just keep in mind that unless you have that kind of really strong relationship where you know the person will like honestly criticize you even though it may hurt your feelings but in the long run it's good for you unless you have that kind of strong relationship take the playtesting sessions with your friends and family Ticket with kind of a grain of salt, because they're probably just going to say nice things. But the product doesn't improve, the game doesn't improve, and you don't get any better if you only listen to good feedback. Or, I guess, positive feedback. So where is it that you might find good playtesters that won't be kind of emotionally bound to giving you positive feedback? Well, I think a really good place to start is our community Discord. Um, The culture we're trying to build in the community Is one where we're not afraid to give deserved criticism and well-measured playtesting it's like i said earlier where sometimes it definitely hurts to hear that something you worked on really hard Um, it hurts to hear that people didn't really like it or that it has flaws but i promise you that you will be better off and your game will be better off if you take like a negative playtesting session and well-deserved criticism if you take that to heart and figure out what the flaws are long term it's going to be a lot better for you and your game and this is how I feel like the general game dev community sentiment is so anywhere you find game devs uh, collecting I think is probably a good place to find play testers and it just so happens that the game dev field guide community discord is one of those places so if you're looking for good play testers I would definitely go to the show and tell channel on our community discord and post your game and ask for people to give feedback. So now that we know where to find good playtesters and what we should look for, we need to know how to design the playtesting session. You can think of this like an experiment and we kind of want to do the same scientific method stuff that you learned at your middle school science fair. You want to propose a change, hypothesize what it might do, Test that one change in a few conditions, collect data, and analyze it to see what you found out. Now, that's my very loose description of what <laughs> the scientific method is, and I think it's probably definitely wrong, but the, really the point is you want to have a plan and a specific goal for playtesting. So let's take our previous example of trying out a new weapon in a 5v5 shooter. We want to know if the new gun is properly balanced. We might guess that based on its high fire rate and magazine size, uh, but low damage, we might guess that those things will balance each other out. And the condition we test this in is in a regular multiplayer deathmatch, um, we'll be looking at, let's say, the firefight win rate percentage for people using that gun, and like we said earlier, we'll be using play testers of the same relative skill, and it'll kind of be those middle-of-the-pack people. We might want to collect a lot of data like the time to kill, the distance between the two combatants, how many targets one person was fighting, stuff like that. And then in the end, we'll look at all the data and we'll let that inform us on the balance of the weapon. Now, the most important part is after we've come to those conclusions, whatever we figured out from the data we should test them again with some tweaks. For instance, if our hypothesis was right and the gun was balanced due to its high fire rate and magazine size and low damage, we'd like to maybe test it again to make sure and we'll test it in the opposite case. So maybe we'll adjust and make the fire rate like super high or maybe we'll make it super low and see if that changes our results. And doing that and adjusting those variables will really let you get it dialed in, get the balance dialed in. And in this case, what's perfectly balanced might not be as fun as it could be. So the other thing you have to consider is what it is you are dialing in. For me, I always try to maximize the fun. So well a gun that has an okay fire rate, an okay magazine size, and okay damage, that gun may be perfectly balanced, like on the data sheet, but I prefer to measure things in fun and then use the balanced data kind of secondarily if that makes sense. So, so in order to retain as much fun as possible, I might go with like a super high fire rate gun, like way off the charts, um, because it's fun, and then balance it after the fact with its magazine size and damage to compensate. And then I'll have a different gun that's really unique in the way that it has like a low fire rate and high damage or something like that. Because if you only went by the data, I think what you would end up with is a bunch of sort of middle of the road guns that all work the same so the point of that is to kind of realize that just because you're collecting all this data and you're making a data-driven decision don't let that give you a blind spot because you weren't measuring things and how fun they were you were measuring in how balanced they were or there's probably a ton of cases um, like that so I guess just be careful what it is you are measuring while you're designing a playtesting session your playtesting sessions don't always have to have so many variables either. For the average indie dev, you may just want to test like one thing. For instance, if you had a 2D platformer, you may want to figure out the optimal level length. And so you would do that by measuring the seconds it takes a playtester to complete the level, and then I guess have them rate the fun, like one to five. And you might come away knowing that Playtesters rated the fun 4 or above every time um, they played a level that took 35 to 45 seconds to complete. So then you know that's kind of your sweet spot. You want a level that takes around 40 plus or minus seconds to complete. But the cool thing about data is that it might also reveal something to you that you hadn't considered. And so what you want to do with these playtesting sessions is really test the limits. For instance, in our platforming example, you might try to make a level that only takes five seconds to beat. Common sense might tell you that this won't be best, and you might rule it out and not even test it. But if you do test it, then you'll know for sure, and maybe actually five-second levels are, like, super fun. The only way you're going to know is by playtesting, and don't count it out um, because it doesn't make sense right now. Don't count it out because unless you playtest it, you actually probably won't know and this kind of goes with the idea of finding the fun um, and how unorthodox processes might lead to really fun and interesting ideas Um, so if you want to know more about that go listen to the finding the fun episode. So yeah I guess the big takeaways in playtesting is to make sure that you design a playtesting session so that you come away with good specific information that helps you improve your game. And you want to avoid blind spots um, either by the way that you design your experiment or the people who are carrying your experiment out. You want to make sure to try and avoid blind spots with that. So with that, let's jump over to the second topic of today's Quick Tips episode. Um, The second topic of today is working in a team on a game dev project. On this podcast, I usually talk about game dev from the lens of the solo Swiss Army Knife developer. That's kind of what I've been calling them. This is someone who can do a little bit of everything and complete a game by themselves. But a lot of devs out there actually work in teams, and so I just wanted to give a few quick tips, um, especially with our team monthly game jam coming up next month. So the very first tip is to have self-awareness and knowing what you bring to the team. We all have strengths or something that we're either more naturally talented or have more experience with, and we all have flaws and things we aren't great at. Knowing objectively what you're good and bad at will really help you find your place in a team. And notice I said objectively. This is what you're good and bad at regardless if you want to be good or bad at them. That's kind of where the, the self-awareness um, comes in. And really finding your role on the team and knowing your own strengths and weaknesses, that's really advice for being on any team um, at all, whether you're in game dev or not. But because game dev requires such a vast range of skills, it is important to identify and communicate what your strengths and weaknesses are so that you can find a role. The second tip I have is really more of a methodology or mindset and That's the idea that you have to understand that everything about the project will be a collaborative effort. And maybe I don't mean it like everything. I mean it as the whole of the game will be a collaborative effort. And because of that, the outcome of the project will never be the idea that is in your individual head. Everyone's perception of what the game will be um, inside of their head is not what the game will actually come out to be. I know we've talked about this before, but the game will kind of evolve its own personality and style and ideas and sometimes even gameplay. And that will all be an amalgamation of your team's ideas. And so because of this, I try to think of pieces of the game that fit well with my teammates pieces instead of trying to think of the whole game in its entirety. If everyone on the team is just trying to make the game that's in their own head, um, you'll be left with a project with blurry definition and direction. And games without clear and defined direction are often not very good, because they get this kind of Frankenstein thing, where the pieces don't really line up and work that well together, or everything just gets toned way down into kind of like this blended together gray blob of a game. So what you should do is use your strengths and build the according pieces to the overall project and make sure that your pieces complement your teammates' pieces. And lastly, when working in teams, I think the planning and pre-production step is very important. Having a solid game design document will make sure that you are all working in the same direction. Describing the game up front will help to define what it is so that you can avoid that blurry gray blob or Frankenstein problem we mentioned earlier. When you're doing this game design document, make sure that everyone's input on the game design document is heard and make sure you hear out every idea and concern. If you settle all the disputes up front and all come together to an agreement, the development process will move along much smoother. And sometimes you might just have a hard disagreement about something about the game or something that should be in the game. And in disagreements like this, I think you have to first deploy some self-awareness. If the thing you disagree about is one of your weaknesses and and it's the other person's strength, then I think maybe you should consider conceding your idea, which is hard. Nobody likes kind of backing down their own idea in their head. But like I said, when you're working with a team, you are using your strengths to make pieces that complement with other people's pieces. And so if your disagreement is about someone else's piece that they're strong with, you know, I think it just takes some self-awareness to just kind of concede the point. On the other hand, if it's your strength that you are disagreeing about, like like you're having to really fight for your idea and this idea kind of falls within your wheelhouse, um, then I think you should fight for your idea and really stick up for it. And, you know, just tell your teammates, like, hey, this is my strength, and I think the overall game will be better for it if we do this piece this way. But sometimes you just can't settle on something, and that's fine. Um, In that case, you'll just have to compromise, Compromising, I think, is always a good idea, uh, because if you just keep kicking the conflict down the road, it's really going to mess up your development schedule for later. And if you're clashing all the way up to the end, then the game is going to show it, because the game is going to have clashing pieces. And so I think compromising is always better than never resolving the conflict. Sometimes it's useful having someone in a leadership position called the game director, and a game director is sort of the main interpreter of the game design document and kind of vision holder for the game. They make sure that everything and everyone is all working together in a consistent direction and that the final product will be close to the vision that everyone came up with during the planning and pre-production phase. The game director would be the kind of person to settle the dispute Um, In the case we mentioned before, and that is because theoretically they are the most knowledgeable person as far as like what the vision for the game is to be. And like I said, they're kind of the vision holder and they're protecting that. And on some really big teams, the director position is broken up into smaller chunks like art direction or creative direction. You might have a producer who, who handles like production stuff, you know, story direction, gameplay director, all sorts of stuff like that. But on small-scale indie teams, you might not even have a director at all. Um, But if you do, it's usually like one or two people. And the last thing I'll say about the pre-production and planning phase is that don't forget that a lot of the ideas for your game are going to be revealed or you're going to come across them mid-development. And this kind of goes back to that finding the fun idea and the fact that it's really hard to plan an entire game up front. I think we've talked about how before, like, running from the cops in GTA and the way cops work in GTA was discovered as a bug, like, halfway through the game being made. Um, and then once they discovered that, they'd scrapped their project and said, this has got to be our game now with these crazy cops. And so, yeah, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And we talked about that in the Finding the Fun episode Um, But you kind of figure things out like midway through your production, stuff that's not going to be on your game design document because you didn't have, like you couldn't see into the future, which is fine. And that pretty much always happens because, of course, no one can see into the future. But because of this sort of factor, when your team meets in the beginning, I prefer to come up with the guiding light sort of design document rather than the very specific kind of design document. Of course, at like a big AAA studio, they probably want the very specific kind of design document. But if I'm doing like a monthly team game jam, I think I would recommend to my team that we should do a guiding light sort of document. And the reason we want to do this is that it helps with these spontaneous moments of new ideas mid-development. If you all agree on the same guiding light and the same core principles... Um, decision-making about new ideas, I think, becomes a lot easier. Because the guiding light and principles kind of have some built-in flexibility, I just think it makes this opportunity that you get like mid-development, I think it's just better for that. And if everyone's on the same page about maybe not the exact specifics, but the core principles of what you get, you want your game to be, I think the whole team works better and makes decisions better when they all agree on these core principles and the guiding light. And lastly, I just want to say that when planning a game as a team, make sure to properly manage the scope. Of course, this is great advice for anyone planning a game. Scope is going to be the thing that kills your project. But if it's a danger to a one-person team, then it is like an extreme danger to a team project. I think this is just because when you're in a group of people, it's really easy to build ideas off of each other. And so the scope kind of has this exponential growth pattern in a team. And sometimes it sucks to have to be like the party pooper in this person. Uh, But if you sense your team doing that, you have to bring up scope limitations. And in the moment, you might feel like the party pooper, but I promise that the team is better off for it in the long run. And ideally, if everyone in the team is aware of over-scoping, you won't get there. But like I said, when you're in a group of people, it's really easy to... I definitely have done it before. It's really easy to start building ideas off of other people and then lose track of the scope. So if you sense that your team is doing that, be the one that reigns them back in. So yeah, we covered two topics today. Let's summarize them quickly. Playtesting is an essential part of the game development process. It is ongoing, and it's something that you're going to be doing through the life of the game. There are two kinds of playtesting in my eyes. There's general testing, which is like sending your game to your friends and family or an open beta, just to kind of get an overall sense of what they think. And then there's more methodical testing. We talked a lot about the methodical testing because it's a great way to make data-driven decisions about your game. When methodically testing... You have to make sure to select the right test group. Not accounting for this will leave um, blind spots. This is like how we said before, like only having experts or only having beginners, you're going to have certain blind spots when testing with those audiences. Getting a perfect test group will probably be impossible, so try to at least get a diverse group and understand how to properly manage your experiment around their strengths and weaknesses. Design your playtesting session so that you get back very specific information. Don't be afraid to test things that seem dumb or way out there because you won't actually know if it's dumb unless you test it. A lot of really interesting and unique gameplay comes from testing dumb ideas. The key to all of it is design a good playtesting session that is specific to the thing you're trying to find out and it's done in the right test environment with the right audience. We also talked about working in teams. When working in teams, remember the importance of self-awareness and knowing your strengths and weaknesses. This will help you find a role um, that you fit into on the team. Understand that the game, as soon as you become a team, the game is going to be a collaboration between everyone on the team. So it's better to think in terms of pieces rather than a complete game. Think of your ideas and use your strengths to make pieces that make sense for you and that fit well and complement with your other teammates' pieces. The planning and pre-production phase will really help in keeping all of these different pieces working together. The game design document should be a solid guiding light. And I think it's the best way to unite everyone's ideas so that the pieces all fit together and are kind of going in the same direction. The guiding light principle will also help when new ideas pop up during development. A game director is a leadership role that can also really help in facilitating this idea and kind of keeping everyone on track with the guiding light. When coming up with the game design document, uh, you may have some disputes. And remember that when it comes to disputes, you should play to your strengths and weaknesses first. And if you still can't come to an agreement, I think that you should compromise. Do not just keep kicking the conflict down the road or just never solving it and just having a weird division in your game. Just compromise. You might be upset about compromising an idea you held strongly at first. But in the long run, it's going to be better for the team. It's going to be better for the game. Lastly, and maybe the most important tip for working in a team is that scope creep is going to become a huge danger um, for groups of people. And that's just because it's really easy to kind of start bouncing ideas off each other and building off each other in a group of people. And um, sometimes you have to be the lone voice that brings up the scope. And it's never fun to be the party pooper, but you're team and game will be better off for it and i think it's important that you do if you sense that is happening to your team so yeah with that i'm going to end the episode if you want to get a hold of me i'm on twitter and instagram at underscore zachavelli underscore we do have a patreon um being a patron lets you pick an episode topic a month it sponsors a third episode every month it's a direct way to support the community and it just does a lot of good And yeah, if you're interested in becoming a patron and getting that sweet purple name (laughs) on the Discord, I will uh, leave a link in the show notes. The Open Community Discord, there's also going to be a link in the show notes for that. That's where we do the Game Dev Challenge. That's where we do the Monthly Game Jam. Next month, we'll be doing a team Monthly Game Jam. So if maybe you always felt like you didn't have the skill to complete a game because you don't have the other skills, but maybe you're a really good artist, um feel free to come join in that and work together with the team it'll be a really fun experience and i will be participating next month as well so with that i am going to sign off i have been zachavelli grandma's boy is the best game dev movie ever made and i'll see you guys next time